US President Joe Biden delivers his first address to a joint session of Congress. We'll have full reaction for you. The New York Times retires the heading op-ed from its opinion pages. We'll discuss why. And as streams and sales of the music of solo artists soar, we'll ponder whatever happened to the once all-powerful pop group. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today on the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 29th of April and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and with us today are our regular Thursday duo in the form of Carlotta Rabello and Henry Reese Sheridan. Henry, Carlotta, great to have you both with us on the programme today. We are almost at the end of another week so how's the week treated you there in your respective corners of the world? Carlotta, let's start with you. So far, it's been a good week, Tom. Uh, More and more people getting back to the office, which is lovely. Seeing London, you know, back into full swing, even with a bit of rain. You know, everything is going back to normal. It's been quite busy at Midori House, um, working on a lot of uh, different projects and exciting things as well for Monocle 24. All will be revealed in the next couple of weeks. Um, But yes, it's it's always interesting when we speak uh, every week and we get to this moment where you ask me to reflect on my week. And that's when I really realize all the things I have done and you scare me into thinking of all the things I have to do and now there's only one day left. So thank you for that. (laughs) We're glad to be of service, Carlotta. And Henry, how about you? Probably the most important thing, well, no, I wouldn't say important, exciting thing that happened to me actually uh, this week was immediately after the show last week, which is I got, I got cupped by my physical therapist. Have you ever been cupped? Do you know what cupping is? I have been cupped many years ago. It was a pretty fantastic experience, if I recall. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, so by the way, just to explain to the listener, this is where it's kind of, I think it's a form of kind of Chinese alternative physical therapy, right? Where they, uh, attach cups to various parts of your body, uh, using, uh, a suction mechanism and it's meant to kind of draw the blood up and heal something somehow. It was an interesting experience. It leaves quite unsightly marks though on the skin, which I had to, uh, avert my eyes from for the rest of the week. Are you feeling, uh, revived, Henry? I'm fully revivified. Yes. Glad to hear it. Henry Reese Sheridan and Carlotta Rubello, it's great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, we begin today's show in Washington, D.C., where last night President Joe Biden gave his first primetime address to a joint session of Congress. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. Well, it wasn't only in his introduction to his address last night that Joe Biden alluded to the history-making moment. As Rob Cox, global editor of Breaking Views at Reuters, told us from our Zurich studio on the briefing today, the scale of what Joe Biden proposed last night via his so-called American Families Plan is on many fronts without precedent. It's brand FDR in a way, right? I mean, so you have almost what you might call sort of European style social safety net uh, uh, being being put forward and uh, a tax policy that is designed to pay for it that also looks very much um, like what you see in developed nations in, in Europe. And I think that's, you know, it's quite fascinating to see it. And he's gone very big. I mean, these are not small numbers. If you add up the sort of three programs that he's put forward, the American Families Plan, 
the American Rescue Plan and uh, and this infrastructure plan, you're talking about six trillion dollars of spending over the next ten years, um, which is which is a, of a whole other dimension. Rob Cox, global editor of Breaking Views at Reuters there, speaking to us from our Zurich studio a little earlier today. Carlotta, to begin with you, what struck you about what President Biden proposed last night? And if we put the pretty vast price tag that Rob Cox uh, outlined there of it all uh, to one side for a moment, it is hard to overstate, isn't it, just how big, transformative even many of these proposals are for a place like the United States? Oh, absolutely. It's um, it's even hard to get my you know head around the figure that it, that that's such a mammoth number. But you know this, it became clear that this is going to be uh, an administration that wants you know big government spending to really change people's lives. Uh, uh, there was a, a lot of emphasis about you know jobs, and he Biden did a good um, in in his speech a, a good job, if you pardon the pun there, to uh, tie it with climate change and say, you know what, like if we invest in things that will prevent climate change and will make our planet better, that will also bring up jobs. Um, and the, you know, the importance of creating better conditions for working families. Um, he mentioned that several, several times throughout his address. Um, of course, he talked a lot about unity as well and the importance of the country coming together. Um, he Mentioning, of course, the protests that happened uh, after the George Floyd murder and even the Capitol riots, talking about it as one of you know the biggest affronts to um, American uh, democracy since the Civil War, which uh, is quite an, an amazing statement for a president to say. Um, I think it's this idea that, you know, America is um, rising from some sort of ashes, <laughs> that um, this is a big opportunity to actually do some meaningful change, to invest in things that, you know, will give a social safety net for citizens, um, as we, uh, Rob Cox alluded there in the clip, this idea of, you know, the state taking care of people like we see in the majority of democracies across uh, the Western world. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I just, it really, it was really nice to see that and to hear his words. And I know we played a clip of it, but that moment that he said the words, Madam Vice President, it, it's just... It, just to think that, you know, it was in 2007 when Nancy Pelosi became the first woman to ever sit behind the president for that address. That's not that long ago. And I want to think that, you know, this is an indication that more progress is coming. Uh, better days are ahead. And um, whether we, you know, like it or want to admit it or not, what happens in U.S. politics matters to the rest of the world. It's probably one of the most influential um leaders in the world, and not even talking here about, you know, foreign policy, etc. But as a figure, you know, American democracy as a bastion to the rest of the world, it has impact. So it, it had yeah, to see that, um, I don't know, left me a bit. Uh, felt, uh, I, I can't remember over the past five, four years, feeling like that after hearing an address from the president, let's put it that way. Well, the task of giving the official Republican response to the address fell to the South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. And as Suzanne Lynch, Washington correspondent for the Irish Times, told us on the briefing today, his appeal appeared to be towards those still stung by former President Trump's defeat in last November's election. 
Yeah, it was well, going to be an interesting few years on the conservative side of, of the spectrum, because in a way, you know, you do have a lot of, you know, millions of disaffected, unhappy Trump voters uh, who are out there and need somewhere to go. Uh, and Fox News has successfully carved its space, arguably even more successfully during the Obama years, when they kind of uh, gave the red meat to supporters who didn't agree with what was happening in the country. Um, so are we going to see that again over the next few years? Uh, perhaps. Suzanne Lynch, Washington correspondent for the Irish Times newspaper there, speaking to us on The Briefing today. Henry, uh, Tim Scott accused Joe Biden in his uh, response to the address of pulling the country further apart rather than fostering a climate of, of bipartisanship in Washington, as Joe Biden had promised to do during his presidential campaign last year. And is that true in your mind? What are the Republicans trying to tap into here with this line of deeper divisions, do you think? To be entirely honest with you, I think that at this point, any accusation by a Republican uh, aimed at the Democratic Party saying that they are they are fostering divisiveness and partisanship is is pretty hypocritical, given the uh, extreme partisanship that was that was fostered by President Trump and indeed the party as a whole certainly enabled by the party as a whole, while he was uh, ascendant in the uh, in the political scene. Um, I mean, in terms of what they, they want or what they are thereafter uh, in their response to Biden's presidency in general and this speech in particular, I think it's quite straightforward. And it's the same thing that, that most political parties around the world want, in opposition anyway. So first of all, they want to attack the president as, as the opposition party, um, uh, just as a matter of kind of uh, political operation. And uh, second of all, I mean, you know, these these big spending proposals, I think it was mentioned earlier that, you know, the, the, the uh, various stimulation packages that Biden has announced amount to six trillion dollars of government spending. You know, that is that is uh, in opposition to the uh, classical tenets of conservative ideology, not just of the kind of uh, Trump and post-Trump Republican Party, but going back before that, I mean, you know, Republicans are the are the uh, are the uh, historically the party of small government. This is very, very, very big government, and uh, I think that that a degree of uh, opposition to those kinds of policies on the part of Republicans is is natural and, and to be expected. Well, next here on the late edition, the New York Times this week announced that it's retiring the heading op-ed from its opinion pages after 50 years of using the term. And Carlotta, to start with you, why is the Times, why has the Times said that it's, it's doing this, that it's changing the way it labels, I suppose, opinion that it publishes? Well, so they, they explained um, kind of the story, the history about, you know, when the term first emerged, um, saying that, you know, the first time that it was ever in print was the September 21st, 1970. And the reason of the name OPED was because it appeared on the opposite side of the page uh, of the editorial. So opposite editorial and um, as a way to name that opinion section. And now they think that, you know, the world has moved forward to a time where we are in a digital age where millions of readers do not actually, in fact, buy the physical newspaper. They'll have digital subscriptions instead. So there 
is nothing to be opposite of. <laughs> so there's no editorial page per se, because you are reading articles on your laptop or in your phone, uh, and it's different. So uh, that is the the reason that they give for the change in name. They say, you know, that um, it just is a reminder of this older newspaper era or where print journalism was uh, king. Um, and that, you know, it's a designation that they want to retire. They, they stress that, you know, editorials will still very much appear on uh, here on the, on the New York Times, you know, they still will be called um, editorials. But the articles that would traditionally go on the op-ed section that were written by uh, outside writers from the newspaper, they will uh, be called from now on uh, guest essays. Um, I, I just think it's quite an interesting um, uh, decision. Uh, I don't know if it's going to change much in terms, you know, you're just changing the label. So it's not going to really change the content of it. So I don't know how much it is going to impact the reader's uh, experience of reading the newspaper or the digital edition of the newspaper. And it might actually have been nice to, you know, have a hint of, you know, this uh, older age of journalism um, uh, there on page. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I I don't know. I I really don't know how to feel about it. Well, it's interesting, Carlotta, that you mentioned there, you know, does it change the content uh, of the opinion that the New York Times publishes? And Henry, I suppose it's the opinion section uh, in the Times that has really garnered the most criticism, I suppose, over the past few years, particularly during the Trump years, quite frequently when criticism was thrown at places like uh, Fox News, for example. Uh, It was quite striking to me that actually on the other side of that, the New York Times opinion pages are quite often thrown into the same uh, debate in this time, this kind of idea of sort of unbridled opinion on one side or the other uh, of the political spectrum. Do you think that retiring the idea op-ed for the logistical reasons, the the ways that we consume opinion, as Carlotta outlined there, do you think that's all that's at play here? Or do you think there's a recognition that the appetite for opinion has changed itself, that the appetite also has has grown in the United States in many ways? I think that this rebrand of one of the Times's core editorial products probably does reflect a desire on the part of the institution to clarify in the minds of its readers what the function of the what op-ed or what's now called the guest, guest essay is. Um, I suspect there's a degree of confusion Um, uh, among readers, and and that's been reflected in a significant degree of turbulence, uh, particularly over the past couple of years, uh, uh, in relation to it, a lot of controversy. So to to, to recap, you know, the the point of the the guest essay slash op-ed page is to invite in a diversity of opinion, a diversity of ideas that wouldn't otherwise get expressed in the Times's relatively liberal uh, uh, reporting and writing, and and, and that's always involved inviting in uh, conservative thinkers. After Trump was elected, um, there was a concerted effort by the Times to bring in conservative thinkers uh, to to reflect a kind of, uh, I suppose, what they considered to be a new consensus of, uh, or or the new Overton window of opinion in the country. Among those uh, writers was was a writer called Barry Weiss. Um, who who garnered controversy for her conservative opinions, the conservative opinions that she expressed in the op-ed pages from the moment she she got there. Um, And and she ended up leaving in July of last year 
um, claiming that the amount of blowback that she received internally at the Times for expressing her opinions and the extent to which she perceived the New York Times to be controlled by a kind of relatively small Twitter mob uh, of, 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 of vocal uh, uh, media fanatics. Uh, she, she thought that, 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 had, that she'd been internally persecuted, essentially, from within. From within. So that was one of the big controversies. Um, and I think that, you know, yeah, the Times is facing this, this kind of... Most people who read the New York Times, it, the readership is overwhelmingly liberal. I think what people have come to expect from journalism has changed slightly over the last four years, where people now want the activist journalist has become more of an entity. Liberal journalists now are expected not only to kind of like report the facts, but I think that a lot of them have 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 um, have have garnered a significant following, taking a more activist stance and, and going after uh, conservatives more aggressively and not concealing their prejudices as much. And so I think that when people turn to the op-ed page and they read, read conservative opinion, they they uh, are averse to that and 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 don't. I think a lot of people don't feel that that's what they've signed up for within reading the New York Times or something like that. I could be wrong here, but but my my suspicion is that this rebrand you know op-ed is quite a jargony in in term among journalists and i think that the guest essay i think they hope will enable the reader to segregate in their minds um that this opinion does not reflect the new york times's newsroom um it, it is it is a place where different opinions opinions that might be opposed to their own is going to be expressed well, finally here on the late edition, the pop frontman Adam Levine of the pop group Maroon 5 claimed in an interview a few weeks ago that the pop group is a thing of the past. Well, if you look at music streams in some parts of the world, like in the US and in the UK, you can see that he might be onto something where it's solo singers who regularly top the charts. Well, who better to ask about whatever happened to the once all-powerful pop group than Monocle 24's very own music man Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Is the game over for music groups? You'd have to believe yes if you've been reading the papers after the reactions to Adam Levine's comment that he felt there aren't any bands anymore, that he feels they're like a dying breed. In a way, I have to agree that looking at the charts, groups did lose their influence to solo artists. Although, it must be added that this is not the case across all countries. Just look at the rise and rise of K-pop bands such as BTS and Blackpink. But from the top 10 global artists in 2020, according to the IFPI report, only one was a band, and that was BTS. But I really don't think this is the end of bands. That would be a silly thing to say. What we are seeing instead is a move to more collaborations between solo artists. In fact, it is very hard reaching number one these days without a feature artist in your song. You've got 
In the top 20 songs in the US this week, half of them are collaborations. Although not exactly bands, collaborations show that going purely solo is not exactly the solution for everyone. So Adam Levine might have exaggerated a bit, saying that bands are a dying breed. I love bands. These days I'm listening to a Japanese reggae band called Duns River, or the great French electro of both La Femme and L'Imperatrice. Or my old-time favorites, Kraftwerk, Spice Girls, and sorry Maroon 5, you're not on my list. From Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando Augusto Pacheco there, host of the weekly review of the world's pop charts, the global countdown here on Monocle 24. Uh, Henry, I don't know if you were singing along to some of those excerpts in Fernando's uh, essay for us there, but when you're singing in the shower of a morning, are you more of a group sing-along kind of guy or do you prefer a, a solo artist? I might not be able to answer this. I'm still reeling from the revelation that Fernando's a Kraftwerk fan actually, Thomas, uh, which is uh, not something that I was either aware of or would have predicted. Um, no, listen, I don't sing in the shower. I, I don't sing under any circumstances. But I did find reading uh, uh, around this topic uh, interesting. I think the data that points to the decline to the decline of bands, you know, in at least the mainstream charts, is very compelling. Um you know, Dorian Lin- Linsky has written about this phenomenon in The Guardian, and I thought that the, the, tr- the, the, I thought he did a pretty good job of exploring the relevant angles. And I think that the, the two points that he makes in that piece is that a combination of technology and economics has kind of uh, uh, dis- dissuaded generations of uh, upcoming generations of young musicians to kind of adopt the band format for making music. On the one hand, uh, uh, music-making technology, uh, easily available consumer music-making technology means that, you know, uh, top chart-topping singles can be really at least demoed, if not entirely produced from inside a teenager's bedroom on a computer. Um, you know, and that, that that you know, why bother finding bandmates and going to the fuss of finding rehearsal spaces and, and, and dealing with the kind of clash of egos when you can just produce something on your own? And second of all, I think there's a strong economic imperative that discourages discourages band formation. It's enormously expensive to start a band. You know, you need lots of, lots of equipment. You need you need rehearsal space. Uh, if you do end up receiving any royalties at all, which is less and less likely in the current uh, with the current state of the music industry, you've got to split that three, four, five ways. Um, whereas if you're a solo artist, you know, you can take a, a much bigger cut. Um, and so the decline of of the the band as a kind of like commercially commercially viable musical entity, I think is is a real phenomenon. And I'm I'm not sure if it's going to come back. It could be a fad, but um yeah, they could be they could be gone forever. It's interesting, isn't it, Carlotta, because you think, well we heard from the Spice Girls there in Fernando's essay, uh, that, you know, that that was a group that was formed from answering adverts in a newspaper for for people to join a new band. This idea that the music industry itself was crafting and making uh, these groups, not that 
that long ago to great commercial success. It is kind of interesting, isn't it, that that it has kind of slipped away, it seems, from what people want to listen to. Yes, and and to that point, uh, and going back to what Fernando said, you know, one of the only groups that was on the chart, bands that was on the charts was BTS, another band that has been crafted uh, by uh, people in the pop industry, in the music industry that, you know, put these artists together and created a band. Um, So uh, it just seems like when we look back at these amazing successes when it comes to pop music and, and bands, they mostly happened, you know, in the 90s or in the few years after uh, when there was a huge appetite for that sort um, of performance, those sorts of artists for big groups with, um, um, you know, everything is a show. Um, and, and then if you still look now to- towards particularly South Korean K-pop, it's very rare there that a solo artist has success. In fact, the, the ones that do have started in, in bands before. So it's just quite interesting to see the divide here. Now, uh, I don't know, um, I was trying to think before, you know, before we ch- spoke today about what current pop bands I listen to. And I was really struggling. I listened to a lot of individual artists. And this is obviously speaking particularly of pop. But, and, but then the bands that I listen to, they're not from now. There would be the likes of the Spice Girls uh, or, you know, uh, maybe Haim is one of the few exceptions now, but still they describe themselves as a trio, not as a band. So did they fall into the, that category? Then we go into um, an, another debate. But it, it is really difficult to try to think why that appetite for groups is not there anymore, even though we all still listen to groups, just, you know, not the ones that are, performing and coming out with music now because there's not that many of them. Carlotta Rubello and Henry Rhee Sheridan, it's time to say bye, 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 if you'll see what I did there. <laughs> Thank you very much for being with us on today's programme. Today's studio manager in London was Louis Allen. A big thanks to him, as always, too. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye.